Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our final, our fourth and final lesson in the uh, newcomers orientation. We're going to be doing uh, lesson four starting on page 22, if you'll turn to page 22. And I want to commend you all for doing what I asked at the end of last week, which was pray that this week it would be cooler. So it's cooler today. So really hot in here last week, and you uh, persevered, but it shouldn't be a problem this week. So today, we are looking at this fourth lesson, which is titled, A Committed Church. So we've looked at the fact that we uh, seek to be an intentional church, and a healthy church, and a spiritually growing church, offering ministries to help people grow. Uh, But now, in this final lesson, it's the kinds of commitments that we make to our members, and that members make to each other. That's the idea here. That's what we mean by a committed church. And over the next several pages, there are several commitments then that are made. And I'm going to go through those and highlight some of it. Uh, there's a lot of text over uh, on these points, so I'm not going to read through all of it, but I am going to highlight portions of it. And as always, if you have any questions as I go through, don't hesitate to let me know. Then, at the end of our time today, I'll, we'll have a, we have a page that shows what you do in order to join our church, if you so choose to to do that. This whole idea of having these four weeks is to inform you about who we are and what we believe and why we do the things that we do. Uh, Then, for you to make a decision about, yeah, this is where the Lord would have us, and if so, what's the process then for joining? I'll tell you that at the end of our time together, okay? Page 22, first commitment that we make is to peacemaking and reconciliation. And you see that there are on page 22 in bold, there are two types of peacemaking. There's personal and there's assisted. So I'll explain each of those. The first one is we're committing to one another to engage in personal peacemaking. That is, uh, if you come into a group of any people, whether you're family or at work or anything else, then there's always going to be disagreements that arise, conflicts that arise. So the question is, how are we going to handle those? Yes, sir. My lesson four starts on 18. I don't know if I'm going a later draft. Yeah, no, I've skipped it. No, I'm on page 22. It is lesson four, but I'm skipping those pages. Okay. Because they're introductory pages, and you can read you can read those on their own. But the substance starts on page 22. Gotcha. That's all right. With the uh, first... Do you need a book? Um, my wife's got it. She'll be right here yeah. in a second. Yeah, I know. My wife's not here. <laughs> they're probably talking to each other. They're probably coming at the same time, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Been there, okay? All right. So personal peacemaking then is when a, a conflict arises, a difference between a brother, you and a brother or sister arises, you know, how are you going to handle that? And you see the bullet points there that we are going to go out of our way then to, uh, to reconcile. Uh, and we're not going to exacerbate the problem by talking about it to other people, talking about other people behind their back, you know, those kinds of things. So we're making a commitment to as much as is possible for us, we are going to engage in personal uh, peacemaking. Now, I say as much as is possible. Romans 12.18 Romans 12.18 says to live at peace with everyone if it is possible. That's what it says. As much as it depends on you, if it is possible, live at peace with everyone. Now, what's that suggesting? That's not always possible because there are always two parties to a disagreement and you're only one of those two parties. You may do everything that you can and should to try to reconcile, but the other person may not. But you're committing to be the person who does. That's what we're saying here, right? But then there is assisted 
of peacemaking. And assisted peacemaking is when there is a when there's a conflict that you can't get straight between the two of you. You both want to get it straight, but you can't, and so you wisely seek assistance. And then in the bullets that follow, we give some suggestions for the kind of assistance you would seek out. You could seek out church leaders uh, to help you with it, uh, and so on. Now, the thing I want to cover on this is that if you look at the top of page 23, it says, when we have a business or civil legal dispute with another Christian or with the church, we'll make every reasonable effort to resolve the conflict within the body of Christ through biblical mediation or arbitration rather than going to civil court. And you see 1 Corinthians 6 cited there. That's because 1 Corinthians 6 talks about Christians trying to handle Christian stuff within, uh, among themselves. So you're committing then to say, yes, I'm going to make every effort to try to do that. Now, I always make it clear here, though, that we're talking about civil matters, number one, not, not criminal matters. If we're talking about a crime that's been committed, then we need to get law enforcement involved in a, in a crime. Civil matters are like, you know, you might have done business with somebody in the church, and they're a contractor, and you thought you agreed on what they were supposed to do and for what price, and they had another understanding, and now we got it, now we got a problem. So you're going to try to handle that among yourselves. You're going to try to handle that if you need to by getting assistance and handle it without going to, to court, uh, if at all possible. Now, it may be that none of that works and you still have to go to court. And we're not forbidding, and 1 Corinthians 6 doesn't forbid, but it does say I'm going to prioritize trying to stay out of court. And if it's a criminal matter, then it's got to go to, it's got to involve the uh, legal authorities. See the footnote down at the bottom of page 23. One resource, footnote 14, for Christian mediation and legally binding arbitration is the Institute for Christian Conciliation. Believe it or not, there is such a thing. Uh, and so peacemaker.net is Peacemaker Ministries. They actually do this kind of thing, and I've actually been involved in uh, uh, arbitration situations where uh, Peacemaker sent one of their trained conciliators uh, to the dispute, and I was asked to come as well. So there is that available if you ever get into that kind of situation. All right? Page 24. So we commit to peacemaking, personal and, if need be, assisted, but also to preserving marriages. Preserving marriages. So marriage is God's idea. God gave away the first bride in Eden, in Genesis chapter 2. And so we ought to take marriage seriously, and we ought to try to pursue marriage the way God says. And the way God says in the Bible is that what God has joined together, let no one break apart, let no one separate. So the teaching in Scripture uh, throughout is that God's ideal for marriage is you have one man with one woman for one lifetime. That's his ideal. In a fallen world, it doesn't always happen that way. But for our part, we commit to try to making sure it happens that way as much as possible, okay? So how can we do that? One, uh, we don't marry anybody unless they go through premarital counseling. So I refuse to marry anybody unless they go through premarital counseling. And I should count how many weddings I've done, but it's been dozens, it's a lot. And uh, go through premarital material with these couples, eight lessons. And in all of those... With all of those couples, 
uh, we've only had one divorce. One. And that one is the one couple that I didn't go through premarital with. Against my better judgment, it was an older couple. They wanted to get married, and they convinced me to let them get married without going through the premarital, and they ended up a few years later getting, getting divorced. Now, it's not because I'm a great counselor. It's because they're just going through some counseling. <laughs> they're, they're preparing. They're getting in their head some ideas about what they're going to face so that when they face them, it's not the first time they ever considered these things. Uh, so we go through the kinds of typical things that you're going to, you're going to deal with, and that just helps people. Uh, and so, thank God that's the way it's been, and Lord willing, it'll continue to, to be that way. So we do the premarital counseling, but we also offer then a family life ministry here at the church. We have a, a whole category of ministries called family life, and that encompasses ministry then to men, to women, to couples, and also to parents. It encompasses all of that. You've heard Pastor Larry announcing some of the stuff that we are offering uh, for our men and for our women. Uh, we got the entrusted class starting uh, on Friday mornings at the end of this month for, for uh, moms. And we have our marriage retreat this coming weekend. So we offer those kinds of things. We do classes on, on marriage. I've taught whole semesters on marriage at our church, which we do periodically. So we try to prepare people for marriage. We try to train people within marriage. Uh, we'll see counseling in a little bit, but we offer counseling, the marriage counseling, for folks as if they have trouble in marriage. All of that, then, designed to try to keep marriages together and for those marriages to be what God designed. Now, it's our understanding from the Bible that God gives two explicit reasons that a marriage can end. Two explicit. There are some implicit, but two explicit reasons. The two explicit reasons are adultery. If one party commits adultery, then the offended party then has license biblically to end the marriage because the covenant of marriage has been broken by the offender. So adultery can end up, it doesn't have to, and we've had situations in our church where someone has committed adultery and the two decided to stay together went through counseling and so on, and they're still together. So I don't say that happened, you should divorce, but I do say if it happens, you can divorce. So adultery is one. The other one is abandonment or desertion. That is one of the parties leaves, and they no longer want to be in the marriage, then you don't have to stay married to someone who doesn't want to be in the marriage. So if they physically leave, but they don't file for divorce, you can't file for divorce because they left. Okay? Now, those are the two explicit uh, warrants for having a divorce. I said that there's some implicit. You know, on this issue of abandonment or adultery, and I won't bore you with it now, but there are passages from the Old Testament that would uh, teach this as well. And that is that there are other ways to violate the covenant of marriage by not supplying the things that are necessary uh, for each other in the marriage. Uh, in Exodus, book of Exodus, under the law, for example, you know, uh, you commit, a husband would commit to supplying a food and shelter and clothing and a safe environment. So if somebody doesn't do that, they're breaking the covenant. So that where this really comes into play is when you have someone, often a woman, who's in a dangerous situation and she's being, uh, and she's being abused. And 
sometimes preachers and churches, I think, have made a, a big mistake by saying, well, the only two grounds are adultery and abandonment. The person still wants to live with you, therefore you can't, you can't divorce. People have been physically harmed. People have actually been killed under situations like that. So I just want you to know the way we see that. That would be a breaking of the covenant and therefore would allow someone to leave and ultimately divorce. Uh, first thing I do if I have a woman and I've had this, and someone comes and says, I'm in danger, I say, get out. Get out right now. And, well, I don't know where to go. All right, we'll get you a place to go. And we've done that. So we will pay for you a place to go. Uh, we will get you, you know, there's, there's a, a, an organization called First Steps. And, you know, it, it helps women. They, if they have to go underground, they can do that. So I've been in contact with, with those people for their safety. Uh, so get out. Get out of the physical danger. And then let's talk about what's happening. And it may be that you have to stay out. And it may be that you have to get a divorce. Okay? But we do everything we can to try to avoid that. Because marriage is God's idea. And we want to preserve marriages. Okay? Page 26. Commitment to protecting our children. So what we require of all of those who work in our children's ministries, children's ministries are defined as working with any of our young people who are under 18, so they're not legally adults. So any of our ministries, all the way through the teen ministries, everybody who works in those has to go through training that our church provides on child protection. So you can't serve with our children until you've gone through our child protection training. And we have a whole manual on things that you're allowed to do and things you're not allowed to do. And that manual includes things like you're not allowed to be alone with a, a child. So we never have one person with one child alone in a room. Just so nothing can happen. And so no, even if nothing happens, so no accusation can be credibly made. Because if you have people around all the time, then that, can't, then that can't happen. When we moved into this building, one of the things we insisted on for our rooms was having glass in all of the classroom doors for this very reason. One of the things our Sunday school coordinator, Christian education coordinator, is to do, and our security team does, is they wander the halls. Right now, we have our Sunday school program going and we've got people wandering the hallways. So they're just keeping an eye on, on what's happening. And every now and then they just pop their head in the door, wave, and then leave. So that just keeps everybody you know, on the up and up. Now, would anybody in a church ever do something untoward uh, with a child? Yeah, you know what happens? You, you read about it in, in churches, and churches are often too naive about these things to say nobody in a church would ever do this and therefore anybody who comes and says I want to work with kids we just put them right right away into working with kids no you got to go through the you got to go through the uh, training you fill out an application and as part of that application you agree that we can do a criminal background check on you to make sure you've never had any kind of uh, issues with with a child so we go through all of that uh, very thoroughly to protect our, our children now, just to give you an illustration of how important it is that we be strict about this and that we maintain this, uh, years ago at our parent church, before we started CBC, I was on staff at our church in Flat Rock, 
And we had a guy who started coming with his daughter, and they were coming to our midweek program. And our midweek program had a kids uh, portion to it. We had a program called Awana. Some of you might be familiar with that. We do Pioneer Club here, but similar kind of thing. We had Awana. And we had our church building, and two doors down, there was a school, Summit. It's now called River Academy, I think. They changed the name. But we, that church used Summit's building on Wednesday nights because it had a little gym so they could have their game time in there and stuff like that. So the adults would meet at the church building, and the kids would meet for the Iwana program two doors down you know, for this thing. All right, so there was this guy coming with his daughter. And... The, the way it's supposed to go is the daughter's supposed to go to the Iwana program, and he's supposed to go to the adult Bible study. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to hang around the kids' program. Well, he's not a member of our church. We don't even know who he is, and he hasn't gone through our child protection stuff. You can't do that. So one of the uh, leaders from Iwana came to me and said, we got this guy, and I told him, you know, hey, we got the Bible study over there. And he says, no, I want to hang around here. And he's even, over the last couple of weeks, tried to help out with the games and get involved and all of that. So I talked to this guy, and I said, hey, we've got this child protection policy, and it's for the protection of your daughter, and you know, we hope you'll cooperate, but you can't be there. You've got you to do this. And he was upset. And he even said, I thought this was a Baptist church. And I said, yeah, what's that got to do with anything? <laughs> but you know, in his mind, a church meant anybody can walk, waltz in and do what they want. And I said, that's the way it's going to have to be. He left. Didn't hear from him for years. Don't know what happened to him. Until years later, I get a call at the church from a school counselor. And the school counselor says, hey, does this, and gave the girl's name. I understand they go to your church or have gone to your church. Now, it's years later. And I said, I remember them, but no, they haven't been here. The reason this counselor is calling is because there's suspected abuse in that, in that home. So think about what could have happened if we didn't say to that guy, hey, you can't be in here. Okay, you can't do this. So if you join our church, just understand we're pretty strict about it. People can't wander down, just wander down to the children's area. Uh, there's a check-in process. Commitment to protecting our children. All right, page 27. Commitment to biblical counseling. Now I say biblical counseling here. Uh, as opposed to Christian counseling, you say, well, how, is, how are those opposed? Well, sometimes they're not, but sometimes they are. Because you can have what people refer to as Christian counseling without it necessarily being biblical counseling. What most people mean when they talk about Christian counseling is they mean counseling given by a Christian. Christian counseling. But see, that speaks to the character of the counselor, but not the content of the counselor. And those are not necessarily the same. So yeah, you want a, a Christian counsel. But you also want to get biblical counsel from that Christian counsel. Now, uh, we then have, and many of our leaders have gone to training for biblical counsel. Kim and I have gone to training multiple times for biblical, for biblical counsel. Uh, we hope to, at our church, it's in our 10-year plan, to start a counseling center through the the church here. So the need for counseling people with their problems and helping people with their problems is enormous. There's just so many things that we all struggle with and some of those struggles uh, are life dominating and they affect all aspects or many aspects of a person's life 
And if they're not addressed, then that's going to debilitate that person from moving on for the Lord. So the need for counseling is enormous. We do it. We want to do it in a greater way in the, in the future. But we want the content of the counsel to be biblical counsel. Now, there's a, a huge debate within Christian circles about the relationship between biblical counsel and then secular counseling training. And just to give you my two cents on it, a person can obtain secular counseling training, psychology or psychiatric training. And if that person is immersed in biblical teaching and biblical theology, then they can bring the insights, the common grace insights, that psychology can give you about how people tick, uh, psychiatry offers, you can use those common grace insights and then filter those through a theological grid from the, from the Bible. And in fact, I think the people who are most effective in counseling are the people who have, who understand how people tick, uh, but they also then see what the Bible says about what motivates us, and they combine those. And when you combine those, then you've got a, got a great thing, okay? So we're committed to biblical counsel. Confidentiality, which follows up on counseling, probably for obvious reasons. So if you come for counseling, then the commitment is that whatever you say stays between you and me if I'm counseling you, for, for example. Uh, people will come up to my wife in church, and they will say, you know, I'm sure Ken told you that, and she's always got, uh, no, nah, he didn't tell me anything. He didn't tell me anything. They expect that I told her stuff, but the truth is I haven't. Uh, so I don't tell Kim anything that she's not privy, supposed to be privy to. And anything that I'm told in a counseling session, unless the person asks me to do that, then I don't, I don't do it. So, and that's true for all of our counsel. It's, it's confidentiality. However, there are a few exceptions to that, and we have those in the bulleted portion here. Look at the second one here. Uh, when, the, when the person who disclosed the information or any other person is in imminent danger of serious harm unless others intervene. You know, so somebody might come to me in and, and, and the course of counsel, but they're suicidal. You know, and there, there are, with the suicide prevention organizations, there are tips that they give you about whether or not somebody is in imminent danger. You know, have they actually planned out, they got these criteria, have they actually planned out what they're going to do? Do they have a particular method involved? Have they actually obtained a weapon or something, an implement to help them do this? If not, if they don't have those things, then they're, you know, they're down, they're talking, but they're just talking is the idea. So you have to, you know, try to discern that. But if you, if somebody comes to me and I, and, or they call me on the phone, which I've had happen, and they say, I'm going to end it, and they've got a gun in their hand. So what am I doing? I am calling 911 as soon as I, as soon as I can to get somebody over to, to take care of it. So that's a breach of confidentiality, but it's for the reason that we gave here. If somebody says, I'm going to go over and kill my wife, you know, she kicked me out of the house last night, and I'm going over to kill her. Well, okay, I want her protected too. So, all right. The third bullet there, when a person refuses to repent of sin and becomes necessary to promote repentance through accountability and redemptive church discipline. Now, church discipline is, I'm going to talk about that a bit on the next page, on page 29. 
But for now, what that means is this, that you've got somebody who's a member of the church, they're involved in open and obvious sin, and they refuse to deal with it. We're going to see in a minute that Jesus gives a process for how to deal with that. And that process that Jesus gave includes going to the person to try to get it straightened out, but then if they refuse to do that, now you involve two or three others. You might even ultimately have to involve the church, Jesus Jesus says. Again, I'll talk about that in a minute. Obviously, that breaks the, the confidentiality. Then, if the person refuses to deal with the, the sin at, at hand. And then, if there are cases of suspected abuse, the last one there, then we have an obligation to report that. And in our child training, our children's volunteers are taught what the criteria are to look for for that. We've got a reporting process for it. Okay? So commitment to confidentiality, except when we can. Those are the times when we can. Now, there's accountability and, and church discipline. And there's a few pages to this. Let me explain it as quickly and clearly as I can. On that first page, page 29, it says that accountability and discipline are signs of God's love. So the first thing that you and I need to do is see it that way. To not see this as a big brother kind of onerous thing where people want to get in your face and get in your business and give you, you know, a hard time uh, with life. But rather, the idea is that we are all banding together in God's church in order to gradually become more like Jesus. And so we help each other to do that. And one of the ways we help each other to do that is when we are off that path, we try to bring each other back. That's the idea of the accountability. And it should just work that way. So if I see you or you see me doing something or behaving in a way that's moving you away from Jesus, then as a Christian brother or sister, I ought to be able to and willing to come to you and say, this is not what Jesus would do. This is not what the Bible says. So I'm calling you to come back, and you should be open to that. In fact, you should be thankful for that. And if you do that, then it's over. Thank God the person's been restored. Okay? So, first of all, see these as good things, not, not bad things, if they're done right. And we say on the next page, page 30, that most corrective discipline is private, personal, and informal. It's of the sort that I just said. You go to the person, the person says, you know what, you're right, thank you for loving me enough to come and talk to me about this, and I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to repent. We're good to go. That's what Jesus said to do. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins, go to him or her and show them their fault. And then Jesus added, just between the two of you. And if they hear you, you've won your brother or sister over. And that's the end of it. Now that's the way it should go most of the time. It should go the way, I rephrase that, it should go that way all the time. But sin being what it is, sometimes people are so set in, no, I'm going to continue this, that now Jesus said there's a second step. But if they will not hear you, Jesus said, Matthew 18, then take two or three others to go to the person and again lovingly say, hey, we love you. You're moving in the wrong direction. We're asking you to come back. Now, 
Who are these two or three others? This is really important. If you look at the passage in Matthew 18, here's what Jesus says. If you see your brother or sister sin, go to them, show them their fault. If they hear you, you've won them. If not, you take two or three others, and then Jesus adds this, so that every word might be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. And if you were to look at Matthew 18 and see in verse 17, where he says, so that every word might be established in the presence of two or three witnesses, it's in quotation marks. So Jesus is quoting something, that every word might be established by the word of the testimony of two or three witnesses. Where is he quoting from? He's quoting from the first part of the Bible, Deuteronomy 19. It's the law, the law of God. And Deuteronomy 19 is in the context of laws of evidence, like in a courtroom setting. What kinds of accusations can be brought and sustained to find someone guilty in, in a legal setting? And Jesus quoted, and it says in Deuteronomy 19, the testimony of one person is not enough to do that. Now you understand why, right? It's to protect. Because otherwise, anybody can make any accusation they want about it. The Bible applies this a few different times in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew 18 just applies it to our overall relationships. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's applied to accusations made against pastors. And it says there, do not receive an accusation against an elder unless it be by two or three witnesses. Why? Because somebody can just make an accusation. So the laws of evidence in Deuteronomy were, hey, we're not going to find someone guilty unless we have the proof. And one way to ensure we have the proof is to make sure it requires more than one person. Now, if you're awake and thinking about this, you might say, well, what if somebody actually did something and I'm the only one who knows about it? There aren't two or three witnesses. Then they're going to get away with it. Right? Well, understand, nobody gets away with nothing. With God, right? God knows what happened. But what it does mean is it can't move forward beyond that. Now, I'm, I'm underscoring that so that you understand that at our church we would never move further in this process unless we have absolute evidence. And unless the person continues to be unrepentant. So nothing would ever move forward. Nothing would become known to people simply because I saw what I... Maybe someone actually did sin in a way that I saw, but if it's just my word against theirs, we're not moving it forward. And we'll let God take care of it because that's what Jesus says. But if the evidence is there and the person is still unrepentant, Jesus then says, and if they will not hear them, namely the two or three, then he says, tell it to the church. So now you have to come to the church and you have to say, you know, so-and-so is a member of our church and they have done X and we have gone and it's been a year and in my experience, we've had to do this two times, by the way, in 20 years. Sin being what it is, we'll probably have to do it again. I just want to make sure it's not with any of you, okay? Because you guys have been told this is the deal, okay? Up front. This is what Jesus says to do. And so deal with sin. I've I got to deal with sin. you got to deal with sin. Deal with it and we're good, okay? It's when we don't deal with it that we're not good. 
now it comes to this new say this person's a member of our church and we've taken a year to go to them to to beg them to return to the Lord in repentance this is known here's how it's known you know it's not something that is uh, nebulous or subjective uh, this has happened and therefore we as a church now need to call this person to repentance and what the church would do then is put a letter out to the person and say hey we love you and we're calling you to repentance and we want to see this happen and Jesus says if you go through all that and they won't hear the church then he says again this is Jesus so if you're a big red letter edition person these are in red letters okay? I have a Bible you can't really find a Bible that doesn't have red letters anymore. I'm a non-red letter person. The reason is, it's a small thing, but like the whole Bible is Jesus' word, okay? So the red letters aren't actually more special. But anyway, but if you're a red letter person, these are in red letters, okay? <laughs> and Jesus says that you are to now treat that person like a publican and a tax collector, like they are not a believer. Doesn't mean they're not. But now you have to assume that a person who goes through all of that and refuses to get it right before the Lord doesn't have a real relationship with the Lord. Now, they might, and they might eventually come back, and you continue to try to call them back. I have seen this happen. We had a young lady in our church, our parent church, years ago. She committed open and obvious sin, and they wouldn't mind me saying this because they they talked about this publicly. It was actually the pastor's daughter. And the pastor... Uh, it was and is a man of integrity. And he taught this, and it applied equally to his daughter as much as it applied to anybody else. And so we went through all of this. And she had been in my youth group. So I was very, we were very close with her. And so I was very intimately involved with this. And she refused, and we had to go to the church. You talk about painful, yikes. It's horrible, right? But over time, I kept contacting her. Kept contacting her. And I would say, we love you. We want to see you come back. We want to see you repent. Now, it wasn't business as usual. We weren't just fellowshipping like nothing ever happened. You know, but I would approach it that way. Keeping the door open. And just seeing what God's going to do in her heart. Lo and behold, God got a hold of her. She's a member. She and her husband and her family are members of our parent church. Have been for years. Serving the Lord faithfully. But she came back to Jesus through that. So it does happen for and, you know, it's like Dr. Snowberger said in the first hour. You know, sometimes God says for us to do stuff that maybe it doesn't make sense to us, maybe it's hard, maybe we don't like to. Do it. Do what God says, and then let God work the way he chooses to, to work, okay? So that's what we mean by formal discipline, and that may involve the entire church, top of page 31. Last thing I want you to see on this, though, that's important, is... Again, if you're awake and you're thinking about this, think about that whole process. Wow, it's only happened a couple times. Hopefully it will only ha- won't happen much, if at all, in the future. If you don't engage in unrepentant sin, it'll never happen. Okay? But can you foresee a situation where somebody's in this process, they are recalcitrant in their sin, they're unrepentant, they're a member of the church, they know, because they took this class, they know that they're, you know, we've been dealing with this for a year, and now we're going to have to go to the church with this. And they don't want them. So what might they do? Just resign. Hey, I'm, here's my resignation. I'm no longer a member. Which then subverts the entire thing. 
Because see, what's supposed to happen with membership is membership is supposed to be transferred, not resigned. Did y'all know that? That you, God's expectation is that every believer be in relationship with a Bible teaching, gospel preaching church. If you relocate, then you need to align with a, another gospel preaching, Bible believing church. If for whatever reason you guys join this church and down the road you decide, you know, I, I think we would grow better at a different church. It's okay. We don't want to see you go, but it's okay. We don't want anybody to be here that's not helpful for them. And so if you want to go, there are other, lots of other good churches around. I'll even help you find one. I do that for people. Honestly. So I'll help you find one. But you transfer. So, and, and here's why. One, it keeps people from being able to do, you can't fire me, I quit. Okay? And thus subvert Jesus' command about discipline. But the other thing it does is it protects churches against people. And believe it or not, there are people who do this. Have you ever heard of church hopping? And you can kind of go from church to church and you cause a problem over here? But then if there's no communication between churches, then you can go and cause the problem over here. So in just a minute when I talk about the process for coming to our church, if you are currently a member of another church, then there's a transfer process. That goes. Now, with all that, look at the second paragraph on page 32. First full paragraph, page 32. We realize that our natural human response to correction often is to hide or run away from accountability, to avoid falling into this age-old trap and to strengthen our church's ability to rescue us. If we're caught in sin, we agree not to run away from this church to avoid corrective discipline. We affirm membership is transferred, not resigned, as it's God's expectation that we be in recognized fellowship with his church. Okay? So... Join our church, you're a member of our church until you're not. And it's easy for you to not be. We're not look, you know, this is not a prison. Okay. <laughs> so if you don't want to be, it's okay. But we just have a process for that. And you go to another church, and then we, the idea is, we give them a letter that says, This person is a member in good standing of our, our church. And we pray that you'll be able to help them in their spiritual growth, and that's that. Okay. But if you were a person who was a troublemaker at our church, then my letter would say something different, okay? You know, we got to deal with that person before they come and cause problems at, at your place. All right, any questions? So, with all of that, we invite you to become a member of our church. Becoming a member of a church can be a life-changing decision. The preaching, teaching, fellowship opportunities to use your gifts and mutual accountability that you experience in a church can dramatically change your relationship with the Lord and with His people and with the people He places in your life. By joining our church, you'll demonstrate in a concrete way your desire to unite with us to advance Christ's mission. It'll allow you to enjoy ministry opportunities and privileges that are not available to people who only attend, including you participate and you vote in our congregational meetings. You're eligible to minister to children and youth, which non-members are, are not. You can seek more opportunities to use your spiritual gifts in teaching, serving, leading. If you need counseling or support, then your request takes precedence over those for people who have not joined. So we have people who attend our church, and of course we want to help anybody in any way we can. But if I've got limited time and I've got you know five church members who need my time and I've got 
some non-members who need my time. I'm prioritizing the church members as, as their shepherd, as their, as their pastor. So what do I do next? That's what page 35 is. First, make a decision to join a, you see that's italicized, family of believers. That is, just make the decision that, yep, I need to be aligned with a church. I need to commit to a church. And I say here, though, that for some, that's a difficult step. There are many reasons for this, but a common objection often voiced by well-intended people is why bother joining? Isn't membership just a man-made thing? Where is membership in the Bible? And I've gotten that question over the years. That's why there's an Appendix B in your notebook. If that's a question for you about whether this whole membership thing is really biblical and really necessary, then I encourage you to peruse Appendix B if you have any questions. Don't hesitate to ask me. So first thing you got to do is say, yeah, I need to be a member of a church. And then second paragraph, having decided to join a family of believers, prayerfully consider whether God would have you join this one. And if you believe God would have you commit to serve him at CBC, here are the four qualifications. A church member must be a believer. So that means that every member has to have a credible testimony of salvation, that they've come to Jesus Christ. Credible meaning that it has believability to it. That not that you're lying about it, I don't mean that's not what we mean. But that it is in it is consistent with what the Bible says about how someone has a relationship with God. So we have, we're gonna see it here in a minute, you got a one-page application that you fill out if you want to be a member. And on that application you give your testimony of this is how I came to the Lord. And then we have a brief meeting. I mean, I get a chance to read that, see if there are any issues with what you said, any questions about it. And whether I've got any questions about it or not, we have you meet with me and at least one of our other leaders to talk about your application, okay? So a church member has to be a believer. Second, must be baptized, and we could just put a period there, but instead we say baptized by immersion. The reason I say you can put a period, you could just say a church member must be baptized. Because you don't even have to add immersion because that's actually redundant. Because baptism means immersion. That's actually what the word means. It means to dip or to immerse. We would not have, believe it or not, we would not have any controversy about whether baptism is for babies or sprinkling or whether or not it's only for people who can make a conscious decision to follow Christ and are actually immersed in water. We wouldn't have any controversy about that if the King James translators would have done us the favor of translating the Greek word baptizo, baptizo, which means immerse. And so every time you see someone was baptized, it could and really should say, not that they were baptized, but that they were immersed. And if it did, then people would go, oh. <laughs> but instead, for historical reasons that, you know, in the church history class I talk about, this idea of clinic baptism, of baptiz- baptizing people on their deathbeds and things like that, because baptism was seen to be part of your salvation, which it's not. So for all those reasons, this kind of thing developed, okay? Uh, but in the Bible, it is immersion. So when we say baptized by immersion, as I say, that's redundant. I'm belaboring that because some of you may have been baptized in some other way. You may have been baptized as a baby. 
Well, if you were baptized as a baby, then you weren't baptized as a believer. So you're a believer, and then the believer gets baptized, immersed. So if that hasn't happened, that you were baptized after you became a believer, and that you were immersed, then immersion needs to, to take place. In order for you to join our church, you'll need to be baptized. Our next baptism is November 17th. Okay. Thirdly, a church member must be supportive of our statement of faith. Now, we choose our words carefully there. We say supportive of our statement of faith. We gave you our statement of faith in Appendix A. I said in the very first week, if you were to read through that, you're not going to find anything crazy, no snake handling, no any of that. <laughs> but, you know, there, there are things in a statement of faith, like in, in Christian theology, that are, like, hard. The Trinity. You've got one God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You can't quite get your mind around that. Okay. If you've tried to come up with an illustration of the Trinity, don't. Because none of them work. Okay? No, they, they don't. They all fall apart. So, you know, there's stuff like that. And you go, man, I'm not, I, don't, I can't get my mind around it. Welcome to the club on Sundays. But then there's some other things where you can get your mind around it. You just go, boy, I'm not sure about that. Or you might just say straight out, boy, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. Now, our assumption is if you didn't agree about the big stuff, the Bible is God's word. Jesus Christ is God, that He's our Savior and Lord, that it's only through Him that we are saved, and so on. If you didn't agree on that, you wouldn't want to be at a church like this. Right? But then there's other stuff more on the periphery, like I believe in something called a pre-tribulational rapture. That means before the future seven-year tribulation, that before that, God's people will be removed, raptured. It's in our doctrinal state. But not everybody believes that. And you don't have to believe that the rapture happens before the seven years. Some people believe it happens after the seven years. Some in the middle of the seven years and all that. You don't have to, so you don't have to agree with me on that. But you do need to be supportive. And what that means is you're not going to join our church and then try to undermine what we teach. And if you teach, end up teaching at our church, you're not going to teach contrary to what we believe. That's what we mean by support. And then lastly, a church member must consent to our church covenant, including our relational commitments as explained in this lesson. Those are the, the four things. So here are the steps quickly. If you want to join, then we need to know whether you're coming by transfer from another church, whether it's going to be by your baptism because you need to be baptized or it's going to be by your testimony of salvation because you've already been baptized. Maybe you're not a member currently of another church, so you're coming to us. But we need to know what the process then is. Now, notice the transfer. If you're transferring, there's Appendix C, and that just tells you how we go about this. You tell us where you're transferring from. We contact them. We ask them for a letter to transfer like I described earlier, if you're still a member on the rolls some other place. You fill out our membership application. Look at page 37. It's just one page. It's pretty straightforward. There it is. And then the next page, actually two pages, page 39, is the one-page church covenant. You sign that. When you sign the church covenant, what you're saying is, I agree to these four things. Those four things are pretty straightforward. But the fifth one is, 
We acknowledge that we have read the relational commitments of this church and agree to live by them. The relational commitments are what I just went through. So you're saying, yeah, I'm good with that. And then we have that brief meeting between me, you, and at least one of our other leadership team members. Okay? Those are the steps. The responsibilities of membership are you agree to fulfill the obligations of the covenant and you agree to to serve the Lord in our church. We'll find a place for you to serve that fits with your gifts and abilities. And when I say abilities, I mean your time ability and, and all of that. But we all serve the Lord together. Okay? All right. Four weeks. There it is. The whole thing. That's what you do. Any questions at all about what your next steps are then? So if you want to join, fill out the application. If you're transferring from another church, let me know that. And then we can start the process for that and we can go from there. Okay? All right.